We stand together, united as one. Forward on we go, facing friend and foe. We will know what it is. We have not time for that. If we make mistakes, we are lost. Hello and welcome to the Alleycast. Uh, before I get going on this episode, uh, I just want to say a few words because obviously we lost one of our own uh, very recently, Gary Lineker. Um, unexpectedly, uh, he was out doing what he loved. He was out on his bike exercising, pounding away the miles and then sadly uh, didn't make it home from that journey. Um, a complete shock to me. And a shock to many within the the Gontab and Elite Outdoor Fitness AE communities, and uh, he was a um, he was an active member of the group, a very very active member of the group, always pounding away the miles, always out with his beloved dog Storm and Timber, and uh, Storm and Timber at the minute um, for all the right reasons his family can't can't look after Storm and Timber the, the way Gary would and, and exercise them and give them everything they need, so um, Matt EJ on the uh, on the Gontabin pages worked with eight below husky rescue uh, and they are now now with them uh, being cared for amazingly and we are looking for a new home for storm and timber so if you know anybody there who's particularly active and wants to take on these two amazing dogs uh, uh, certainly get in touch with eight below husky rescue if you can't find them on the internet which which um, shouldn't be too difficult actually because uh, i had a quick look and found them straight away they are there they're on facebook as well you can contact them um if you can't offer them a home then maybe you can make a donation towards their uh, towards their care uh, and you can do that via the website also so um yeah uh, let's just take uh, a few uh, moments silence uh, for gary So, on this episode of the podcast, I am speaking to Nick Littlehales. Nick Littlehales, tongue twister. Nick Littlehales is a uh, performance sleep coach. He was the uh, international uh, sales director for Slumberland, um, and then when he left that, he left just at the same time as Slumberland. He arranged for Slumberland to to um, sponsor Oldham Athletics football shirts, uh, and had a meeting with Alex Ferguson. And very quickly, uh, Alex being the, the visionary he was, uh, took him on as the sleep coach for Manchester United. He then moved on to work with Team Sky and British Cycling um, and various other elite sportsmen on on uh, optimising their sleep and, and optimising performance. I came across Nick uh, via the One Year No Beer podcast a few years ago uh, and I bought his book immediately. Uh, and the way he um, the the way he gets you to think about sleep and your sleep cycles within that book uh, completely changed you know, will completely change your outlook on, on how you look at sleep. You won't worry about only getting two hours sleep one night. You won't worry about catching your sleep up. Um, you'll learn exactly the number of cycles that you actually need during that week and how you can use what he calls controlled recovery periods during the day to make up those cycles and uh, and to and to optimize your performance and keep you refreshed so i'm going to go straight over to my chat with nick little hales i still can't say it nick little hales uh, and then um after that i'll uh, just remind you of where you can get his book 
um, and uh, on, on where you can find it. Nick, welcome to the Alleycast. It is it's good to have you on. Um, I first became aware of you uh, through the One Year No Beer podcast. Um, and I actually sort of got reminded of that this week because I'm doing some work with, with Andy Ramage at the minute. Um, and we were, we were having a chat about, about sleep and, and things and, and your sort of common sense approach about how to sort of manage sleep took a lot of the stress out, to, out of it for me. Um, so c- can we just sort of go back and, and just talk about how you ended up working in, in the realm of, of being a sleep coach? It's just, um, it's just I, I, I fell into the, the sleep industry per se uh, uh, by pure accident really because I was trying to be a, an elite athlete a long time ago, Steve, a long time ago. Right. Um, and my experience was that... Um, Sleep was always considered to be important, but it was always taken for granted. It's not a performance criteria. Um, I'd collaborated with a few partners. We created the very first UK Sleep Council, which I was the chairman of. Um, I worked for a very big international company, so I was traveling around doing all sorts of things, working with clinical professors, doing all sorts of stuff and trying to be innovative and all that thing. So, but... um, all the time, it just seemed like there was no definitive approach, no education. So parents didn't pass anything on to their kids. So da da da. Um, and I think uh, I just got disillusioned with it all, mm. you know, because it um, it just seemed to be. We know it's important, but we don't do anything about it. Yeah. So I was on my journey to leave the company. Um, to go and do something completely different. And um, I just happened to end up uh, being asked to sponsor the shirts of a local football club. And I sort of took that opportunity to do that because of the workforce for all the local fans, which was Oldham Athletic up in the Northwest. Um, That suddenly dragged me along to a few events because I was signing the cheque. And so I was starting to go to sort of various football events and things like that. And um, that sort of prompted one or two conversations. It sort of allowed me to, to maybe explore my particular views on sleep and recovery um, at sort of outside of my normal world. Um, and it's, it came as a consequence that um, I sort of bumped into Alex Ferguson, um, As you do, <laughs> yeah, because it happens to be a local club. Because yeah. uh, my UK office was in Oldham, Manchester, yeah. and um, it was just you know late nineties, and uh, it sort of triggered some thoughts that created some dialogue with the physio at the time, Dave Fever, mm. and principally because my confidence was around products and things like that. Uh, we did a little exercise with one of the players called Gary Pallister. Yeah, had yeah. a lot of back issues. Yeah. And it sort of started the process. Um, I did a little bit around Sir Alex himself. I think at that particular time, there was probably only one or two managers himself, maybe Sam Allardyce at the time, in those years where they were very much more open. If you didn't know something about something, why not find out? Yeah, yeah. So... That just started the process, and uh, it sort of 
because back in those days, I mean, suddenly the focus on Manchester United because it was a class of 92 treble winning side and suddenly the media was all over them. And so it sort of came a little bit fascinated that there was this guy going into the club and talking to players about sleep. So a lot of those players um, also played for the national squad. That triggered off a conversation with Gary Lewin, who was the physio for the England squad at the time, 98. And was also shared with Arsenal. Mm. And at the same time, a new manager came along called Arsene Wenger, who had a completely different approach to stuff. And so they asked me to start talking to the first team at Arsenal. That's when I suddenly realised that I'd actually got to try and do this because I was being asked to do it. That's when it sort of all started to come together. But that's really, you know, back in those days, it was just the media and the press, you know, that uh, Arsenal, the national squad and Manchester United have got a sleep coach. What the hell is all that about? Mm. But, you know, it sort of all came together in a sort of very random yep. way. I mean, there certainly wasn't anybody wandering around talking about sleep, that's for sure, back then. Um, and I think over the last, you know, couple of decades, there's been an absolute paradigm shift in, in all sorts of ways that I think what we find now is that sleep and recovery is under too much pressure to ignore it. Yeah. Um, never mind pandemic years that we're in now. I just think non-human schedules, challenges, all sorts of things, 24-7, really, we just cannot have a random approach to this. We can't just wander around going, get your eight hours and don't eat too late and all this mm. sort of stuff. You actually, So I think along the journey... Steve, it was just, there was one or two things always cropped up that we sort of, well, I think we could do this, then something else, I think we could do that. And then in the end, it culminated around 2008-9 with the the sort of rebirth of British Cycling and Team Sky, a strategy to, and they came up with the aggregation of marginal gains. Mm. They couldn't ignore sleep. They chose me to get involved with that process. And that's when I sort of, was able to bring the thing together into a sort of technique. We need to go down this little journey, ticking these boxes, and then what will end up is a redefined approach. And I've been doing that and continue to do that on an international basis for any athlete or high achiever. So what sort of things were you doing for for the likes of Man United and British Cycling that that, that they weren't doing before to optimise the sleep? Well... A number of the first, the first one with um, with Gary was actually what what Dave was cons- what Dave was interested in mm. is that he spends all his time trying to rehabilitate rehabilitate the the athlete the player, mm. but then they drive off and go home, and then they come back and he's still rehabilitating them. So it's kind of like, could we actually use this to see if this? So basically, I'd pop to his house have a look at what types of products, things like that, environment and stuff. And um, we were able to make some little changes, okay, in in layers and things. And then that meant we sort of, we started to see an improvement, Yeah. okay? So then we started thinking about, well, hang on a minute. Do we advise players, you know, what they're sleeping on at home or their environments and things like that? So that was the first thing. Then Alex Ferguson came along and said he wanted to double up pre-season training. So the training in the morning and the afternoon. So the only data they would collect would be training in the morning. Mm. Then they started to see the training and the, the data from the afternoon. And it was sort of like, there's a, there's a few little changes going on here, which didn't quite make sense. So then 
I just, you know, we started talking about chronocytes. So we've got morning players and nighttime players. So that's probably what's happening is the data in the morning sessions shift in the afternoon sessions because of their natural chronotypes, you know, because they're just not alert. That's interesting. So then they started, you know, double up training sessions and things like that. Then the England squad, then Arsenal, and it's sort of like, well, nobody, had, you know, you mentioned circadian rhythms and the sun going around the planet and brain and bodily functions and light and serotonin and melatonin and chronotypes. You just go, they know nothing. <laughs> nothing. I mean, I was talking a foreign language. So then you get those two bits and then you sort of saw the, the schedule start to change. You know, it's sort of three o'clock on a Saturday afternoon in football back then type of thing. Yeah. And, um, and then suddenly things start to change in different times of games and things and everything else. So it sort of brought me to the point where you had to look at trying to redefine the approach. So they've got a, a sort of what's called a more polyphasic approach to recovery. So it's, it's not just one block or trying to mm. do it in one block. So that brought the next thing in about sleeping in cycles. And you can laugh, Steve, but all it was is I knew that in a clinical academic environment, you look at 90-minute cycles about all the sleep stages, benchmark against the next. That happened to be the length of a football game. So it kind of made sense yeah. for people in that world that if we look at 90-minute cycles, you can't go a, you know, you you can't go a full period. You've got to stop, take a break, rehydrate, whatever, do the next half. You can't go for a full 90 minutes. So it was kind of bringing in the concept of, of cycles with do things for a certain period, then take a break. Da, da, da. So what happened is what we did with British Cycling was just basically put all these things together. So we would educate on circadian rhythms. We'd educate, find out chronotypes within the players and the staff. We'd get them to check their home environments so we knew what they were using at home. We'd then redefine the whole training program and everything else about cycles. Everybody gets involved, you know. At that time, we were teaching them, they were teaching them how to wash their hands, which is quite bizarre standing here today, right? particular protocols to create viruses. So what happened is we brought all that together, ticking all of those boxes, which also included that if we've got certain things that they're very familiar with in their home, is that then we stick them in a hotel for three weeks. And that is a completely unfamiliar environment with nothing in there. That, so then we, we took that bit, the early bit with Gary Pallister sort of thing, and we put that bit on there. So we would check the hotels. We would create little sleep kits for the individual riders. And we would literally install those into, into, into the hotel every night throughout the whole tour. Fresh linen, this sort of stuff. So the riders were extremely familiar with the products that they were sleeping on mm. in kits. We started to put high particle filters into the room to get all the muck out of the air for breathing. We started using mattresses on some of the Grand Tours, uh, toppers on mattresses, and then we just ended up completely taking it out and actually creating their own kit. You just unzipped on the floor. And um, so it was one of those little, let's educate about circadian rhythms. Let's identify chronotypes of everybody, not just the riders. Let's think about recovery and cycles and see how we can redefine that approach, particularly when we're going through a Grand Tour. Then we can look at 
pre and post things and really focus on post-wake sleep. Then we can look at a more balanced approach to recovery is an active performance criteria. It's not doing nothing. Mm. Then we can look at the environments, not only within the homes, but within the hotels we're using and the bus that they had built. And then we can also look at what are those little products relative to their medical form, uh, ecto, meso, endo, uh, little things like that, that we can create products that are inside their home that they're very used to and they know they maximize the recovery. And then we can put those things into their own little kit bag. So it's kind of these seven key, key sleep recovery indicators, as we call them. You know? Yep. It's you wander down that little journey, looking for little blind spots, looking for little ag- aggregational gains, but it is a journey going from one to seven. Mm. Number six is environment. Number seven is product. And most people these days will dive into isolated solutions when they start worrying about their recovery. Mm. That's why they don't work. You know, grab yourself a new mattress, grab yourself a supplement, grab yourself a tracker, grab yourself this, whatever it might be, in isolation doesn't work. Yeah, That's really, you know, why it sort of all seemed to make sense. So it's got, it's probably got nothing to do with the concept of what we have about sleeping. Mm. Sleeping is just something we do when there's nothing left to do. Yes. We're out of control of it. The brain takes over. You know, it's not a performance criteria. Like, so what's the point? Yeah. So we tried to, we, what we ended up doing was not talking about sleep was talking about what do we do from the point of wake right throughout the phases of the day to really encourage the opportunity to give our brain to take us into a sleep state, give us the most consistent, sustainable recovery we can, and then roll it on again for another 24 seven. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, it was rather than, you know, trying to sleep, forcing yourself to sleep, can't get to sleep, wake up in the middle of the night, all of these little things. We want you to try and remove all of that sort of thing. So it almost becomes a perfectly natural thing to do every day. We're not trying to do it. What we are doing is putting certain little things in place that really encourages the brain to give it to us in the best way it possibly can. Yeah, so I think what we're saying there is we don't really, I mean, I know one of the subtitles to your book is the myth of eight hours. So you don't need to go to bed at that time, at a particular same time every night and have that eight hours sleep and then get up and then be awake for the rest of the day. Because I know for me, I was actually doing some research yesterday on sort of circadian rhythms and, and ultradian rhythms and things and looking how I can sort of move them into um, the guys who work for me and see, you know, try on one of my workplaces, see if we can put specific breaks in place that, that, that yeah. will maximize performance on that so uh, people do i mean i used to do this i would go to bed at sort of 10 o'clock at night uh, i would probably have a couple of hours sleep and then i'd wake up and as soon as i woke up or i was aware that i was awake i would think oh that, that's it now my sleep's ruined um yeah. you know i'm gonna lie here awake all night i'm gonna wake up tired in the morning and you know as as we go through those cycles of sleep that waking up in the night is a normal part of that that rhythm and that process, isn't it? Yeah, certainly. We think that that's why I think it's just this very sort of simple education, you know. Oh, God, all the players can't get to sleep after a game, or people wake up in the middle of the night and they can't go back to sleep again. So, well, that's because it's natural. Yeah. Now, before we invented electric light, guys, we never even tried to sleep in one block. 
There's no evidence humans even, because it was not that they were trying not to do it. It's just that the natural circadian rhythms would not promote one block hmm. for that level of time. So the deep sleep stages, the stuff that we really love, only gets revealed sort of between 10 o'clock at night and 2 o'clock in the morning. Hmm. It's part of the rhythm. We put a clock on it. So it's not surprising if you actually you're active all day long and then you sort of pass out at 10 o'clock and you get a little bit of deep sleep and you wake up at two o'clock and feel wide awake. Yeah. Because the Victorians, that's how they used to do it. You know, so it was kind of, it's, then you sort of put it in context, you know, never mind today, but even back then, nurses, surgeons, pilots, parents, you know, factory workers, shift workers, you just went, and people sleeping all in different parts of the planet, you just go, is there actually anybody out there who actually sleeps eight hours solid between two specific points, three, six, five? Because I've not met them. No. I've never met a, a professor of sleep. I've never met. I didn't do it when I was a parent. I didn't do it when I was an executive. It was just like, you know, so it, it, it's sort of like, if that doesn't, I think a lot of the advice is we take no notice of it because actually we can't do it. <laughs> I find it I find it bizarre and like it's only in the past couple of years it's really sort of dawned on me that we um, we're almost it makes me smile all the time. Sometimes it's a bit overwhelming because yeah. we're sort of wandering around as some sort of sleep coach doing these little things. And then suddenly, in sort of the last five or six years, it's become such a major subject: yeah. health, well-being, burnout, this, <coughs> all sorts of stuff. But when you actually look at it, it's like people read my book or listen to my book or listen to me or listen to this. They kind of come away from going, "I actually believe that I knew all of this anyway," mm. kind of. Thing. But I'm not doing it. No. So. It kind of makes sense that I've sort of got all these things together, but it doesn't actually sort of, oh, okay. So I think that's why it, it becomes almost, it puts a smile on people's faces because they just turn around and go, why wasn't I doing this when I was six and seven and eight and in the formative years when I was in adolescence and teenagers and choosing careers? And why didn't I know this? Why have I been wasting so much valuable lifetime? sleeping without any thought yeah. when you when you go back to it um i'd say i was looking at this there's something i was looking at the other day is you're almost what you said before about sleep is something you do when you've got nothing else left to do during the day now yeah. when you're born all you've got to do all day is to dirty your nappy to cry and to eat isn't it and you don't go through that monophasic sleep when you're a baby. You just sleep when you need to. And then when you need to wake up and eat, you do that. And it doesn't matter. Anybody who's had small kids knows that doesn't matter whether it's 11 o'clock in the morning or 3 o'clock in the morning. If you're ready to wake up and eat, you're ready to wake up and eat, aren't you? Yeah, and parents spend most of their time trying to make kids sleep when they want them to sleep. Yeah. They fail because this is a formative growth thing. The brain's in control. And we try and take them out in the cars and put them in the buggies. And we, you know, so as soon as we get the opportunity to try and apply the monophasic approach to them as quick as we possibly can, you know, basically, if you've got a polyphasic approach to your everyday, then a child comes along that sleeps polyphasically. So it's not a shock. 
and you don't move into a monophasic block. So the kids benefit massively mm. by, by not being forced into go to sleep early so we can have some time together as parents. <laughs> it's got nothing to do with knowledge, has it? You know? no. And it's a bit like you can spot that maybe one child is most definitely a nighttime, a chronotype, you know, comes active in the evenings. The other one is a morning type and gets up, you know, uniforms on, eating breakfast. The other one, you can't get them out of bed. Mm. And there's all, why do you make your kids do everything in the same way, in the same time? Obviously, things we have to do together within certain schedules. That's life. But it seems like if you just know a little bit, you can have an enormous difference on a human being at yeah. the right time when you know it. Yeah, and I think talking about sort of morning types and nighttime types, uh, I don't, I actually don't think that that's even binary because in the summer I'm definitely a morning type. I'm up and I'm out because it's daylight and I, I need to go out and I need to go and do things. But I've noticed yeah, I, I, I used to force this in the winter that I'd force myself to get up early and get out, but now I don't because that's not how my cycles are working in the winter. Well, you've been looking into circadian rhythms, Steve. Yeah, so yeah. It's dropped up, hasn't it? Yeah, yeah. And I think it's um, it's another thing that. You know, like creating electric light changed our sleeping patterns into monophasic. Been getting away with it, but not now. Mm. You then had daylight saving time, which was created to create more space in the summer for the war years. It wasn't a human performance factor. Not everybody, not every country does it around the world. And it's actually non-human. We should get rid of it. Yeah. What it does is instead of having a nice balance of light, diminished light and dark do, during every 24-hour process, right? Mm. which is very much about two hormones called melatonin, which suppresses, and serotonin, which unsuppresses, is what you get. You should have around 12 hours of daylight, yep. around uh, four hours of diminished light. Mm. Yeah? This nice bound. When we change the clocks in March, that shifts. So what you're getting is you're getting stimulated. You've been in a period of time where basically the sun isn't rising till like half seven, eight o'clock at the moment, right? Yeah. Still dark. Then you get that process where it's it could be waking you up at five, six o'clock in the morning because the light's there, even if you're cuddled up in your bed with all the curtains shut, right? Yeah. And then you get this extended period. So what happens is a lot of you get this sort of in-betweener approach. So as you go through every particular season, sometimes you're very much promoted by that shift in light to be more active in the mornings because the sun and be more active in the evenings because the light's around. And then you hit the winter and it shifts it. And that's why it's called seasonal affective disorder. So it's not the fact that you're changing your chronotype, Steve. Mm. What's happening is, is you're reacting to a shift in seasons and light yeah. instead of having a more consistent approach. So we always try to, you know, establish the fact that whether wherever you are, you're always getting the average light exposure if, the, if you are actually spending all your time outside. Mm. Yeah. So whether you're inside or outside, doesn't matter what you're doing, you need to have the level of light exposure in the first two phases of the day, importantly, the, the third phase of the day, which is trying to recreate what's going on outside, whether you're inside or outside. Yeah, I, you know, I think a lot of the, the education we get out there on 
um, sort of, I'm trying to think, environments. And, you know, your, your bedroom's got to be a certain temperature to for peak performance, and it's got to be this, and it's got to be that. But you don't really, that doesn't really sort of ring true with me when you look at sort of the best athletes in the world, the, the Kenyan runners. Their, their bedrooms aren't going to be sort of 17, 18 degrees of a night time, are they? I know it just, makes, it just continues to make you smile, doesn't it? So when oh, the optimum temperature is 16 to 18 degrees Celsius. Um, really? Yeah. Well, that ain't going to work. What about Eskimos? What about people in Northern Hemisphere, in Siberia, or there, or, or, or Ethiopia, and Kenyan runners? Or, yeah. I said, surely it's just warm to cool, isn't it? Yeah. As long as I can shift sort of from a a body temperature that's 30 degrees and I can move it down to 27, 28 because of the, the bedroom's a bit cooler or the room's a bit cooler, whatever. It's just the shift in temperature. That's what it is, isn't it? It is, yeah, yeah. So I can't wander around telling, you know, you know, all these all these footballs and everything else that they need to get their bedrooms to 16 to 18 degrees. And then they go, well, what about the hotels, Nick? Hmm. Hmm. What about when we're travelling around? No. Yeah. So it just doesn't make any. It's warm to cool. That's all it is, and it's and it's the opposite way around when you wake. Yes, totally. Yeah. Yeah. So as as we go into the sort of sleep cycles, you know, we we understand that obviously you start in in the light phase of sleep and then into your sort of REM and deep sleeps and what have you. Um, those phases they're about sort of ninety minutes long, are they? Yeah. When I I was working with a professor and he had a couple of clinics and stuff like that and. Um, Basically, he always advocated that when he's looking at, it's called a polysomniograph, Steve. It's yeah. like a sort of spreadsheet with a needle, like a lie detector. Mm. And it's just picking up the various different brainwave patterns. And that indicates what sort of stages of sleep that you're in. Yeah. And some would look at 60 minutes, but the majority of people that I worked around looked at 90 minutes. So they'd look at a 90-minute period of data, then they benchmark that against the next 90-minute period of data. So you can see the shift through each cycle of how the stages start to change, mm. okay? And when they appear and at what levels, right? Yep. So that sort of made, obviously, the football reference kind of helped yep. in, the, in the language and the communication. But five 90-minute cycles is 7.5 hours. There's the eight. Mm. Yep. So it kind of defines it a little bit better. Oh, I'm going to get five cycles, but how are we going to get those five cycles? If you just say eight hours a night, you'll just pick what time you're going to go to sleep and maybe a consistent... So it's so random, isn't it? Ah, now how are we going to apply our five cycles? In any 24-hour period in the circadian thing, it's pretty much a given, wherever you look in research, that... Within the 24 hours, a human being wants to be in a recovery state for around 30-odd percent of that. That's where the eight hours is, right? Yeah, yeah. So eight hours out of 24, you've got to be focused on recovery and sleep's the, the main bit of that recovery process. So in a polyphasic approach, more aligned to those circadian, we got those eight hours per se in a multiphasic way. Okay? Yep. Yep. So that's why it starts to then focus on if we are doing certain things during the day while we're awake, 
that are encouraging these little things to it. When we do present ourselves to sleep and, we, and the brain takes over, we're really trying to give it the best opportunity to roll through those stages in a nice natural way, to reveal them when it's required and get to that particular point where you've sort of taken every opportunity of those individual cycles. So you're not, you're not sleeping for a 90 minute cycle waking up and doing another one. It just, it just creates a little bit more, you know, my, my natural approach to every day, which is very common for a lot of people I work with, because there's only certain parameters with a 24 hour period. Mm. Mine is I start my day at 6.30. So that's really my consistent start to my day. So I will wake in my final cycle anywhere between 5.30, 6 o'clock, 10 past 6, but always before 6.30. Yep. Switch the alarm off because it's only there for security because yep. I'm not in control of the process. And I start my day consistently every day. Mm. Then I will have a late afternoon 30-minute cycle because 30 minutes is... 30% are 90, right? Yep. And that's the classic nap, but we call them controlled recovery periods. So I have a, a cycle, 30 minutes. I'm not even trying to sleep. It's just like a vacant mind space. It's just trying whatever it is, sitting outside, sitting on a sofa, sitting by a window, whatever it might be. Mm. And that 30-minute cycle protects me as a morning cycle, right? Because I'm an AM. Yep. And the last thing I want to be doing in the modern world, is waking up early and then falling asleep early in the evenings, which is what AM is doing. So that little 30-minute cycle late afternoon reveals an unrushed phase three evening period into a much later sleep time. So I sleep four cycles and six hours between 12.30 and 6.30. 30-minute cycle, which is my fifth cycle, which is late afternoon, to protect the the evenings. So my five a day looks like that no that's my five a day yeah the, the thing is once you um and i know that you've got another way of looking at this as well so once you would say something you're a four cycle person of the night time and then that person for whatever reason only gets two cycles then the the traditional way that they'll think about that then is you know uh, i'm going to be knackered tomorrow because i've not had all my cycles but you sort of advocate working out your cycles over the period of seven days rather than just concentrating on one night don't you yeah, because, you know, the sun down here around our planet has no relationship with Monday, Sunday, Saturday, yeah. Wednesday, Thursday. Nothing at all. It has no relationship with our behavior. Hmm. Everything else on this planet is completely synchronized to that process, but we just keep wandering away from it hmm. all the time. So it's kind of like, you know, always get asked the question, you know, you're an elite sports sleep coach, Nick, so you must sleep brilliantly every night. Gave that up a long time ago. <laughs> what I've got is I've got this little dial in my head, 6.30, first 90 minutes into 8 o'clock, then into 9.30, bang, 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 12.30, then the next one along is 2 a.m., then to 3.30, then it down to 6. So you've got these little timings. So when you're sort of looking at it and going, trying to take advantage of every day, planning things in and everything else, you just go, oh, well, I'm trying to make sure is that I get my 35 cycles in any rolling setup, right? Mm. And that could be a combination of back-to-back 90-minute cycles nocturnally, yep. you know, four, three, well. But it's also supported 
by that 30 minute cycle late afternoon mm. right yeah that 30 minute cycle is not about sleeping no. you can fall asleep behind a wheel of a car on a motorway so you know you don't have to try to sleep your brain will just do it to you right yeah yeah, yeah. without any concept you know it'll just do it right so you'll always get a little nudge but the other important thing steve is that Every night, the first 90 minutes of my day between 6.30 and 8 is a recovery period. Mm. I am active, fueling up, bowel and bladder, mental challenges, absolutely fine. But I'm, I'm loads of light, loads and loads of light to really bring myself out of a sleep state, right? Because yep. if you actually go into a proper sleep state, you need to come out of one, mm. right? So it's that mindset straight away. However well you've slept, forget it. This is what you would do in the first 90 minutes of your day if you'd slept all the way through and had an amazing sleep, right? This is what you'd do. Mm. Every 90 minutes, I'm just sticking little distracted breaks, little micro CRPs. And that's just things like you just start, it just happens. So everything you're doing is always this relationship. If I can get close to a window or if I can just step outside, or if I'm at my desk, only fill the hydration bottle halfway up. So it encourages me to go and top it up again. Yeah. A little tiny break. We all know that if I grabbed you by the arm, Steve, and just went, hey, you know, we've been doing this all this morning. Let's just go and sit down by the river. Or let's go and sit outside in the, you know, out there on the bench. And within a very short space of time, you and I just look at each other and say, you know, life's not that bad. Yeah, yeah, yeah. If you're pointing your brain at chaos and problems and challenges, your brain processes that and creates the emotional responses. If you're pointing it at something that's just natural or inspiring or calming, it does the same. Mm. So what these little tiny CRPs is, every 90 minutes, I like to give my brain the opportunity to have a tiny little bit of opportunity to part of our process. Yeah. So when people say, Nick, but you're only getting four cycles at night, which is six hours. I say, yeah, but I sleep all the way through with no disturbances, no going to the toilet, no breaking the sleep, and it's really natural. Mm. Okay, but that's only six hours, Nick. Where's your eight? I said, well, if my brain wants me to, to get more, we'll do it in that 30-minute cycle late afternoon. Mm. It'll just do it. I won't have any control over it. Sit down on your little couch thirsty, bang. Yeah. It'll have told me to do it. Even if we're not going to do it, I still do that vacant mind space because it's still recovering. Yeah, if you've got almost like 12 little micro breaks, a 30-minute break there, sleeping all the way through for six hours, and you feel more productive and happy, and this probably reveals itself more often than not every day. Yeah. Now, are you going to tell me that I'm sleeping less than somebody who tries to get eight hours, wakes up in the middle of the night and can't get back to sleep? Mm. Yeah, I know. I know it's the same for me. You know, I if I wake up sort of, you know, my alarm's on again like you for sort of 6.30 in the morning. But if I'm wide awake at sort of five o'clock in the morning, then I'll get up and I'll go and do stuff. Um, and, I'll, and I'll start to move about because you know what what I don't want to do is sort of wake up in the middle of one of them sleep cycles with a, with a jolt from an alarm as well because you know you're going to feel groggy anyway when you do that, aren't you? I think you mentioned a good point, and that's the sort of coaching journey. It's, it's 
because you've got this little dial, hmm. if you start to wake up, you know, like I say, any time, you know, if you've got a consistent start to the day, maybe 6.30, that's the start of your day. That's not when you wake, right? Yeah. So your, your brain will flick yourself out of sleep at some point before then. So I'm comfortable that if it's 5.45, 6 o'clock, doesn't matter. That's close enough for me, right? Yeah. If I wake up any earlier, then I try and stay in a chilled out, not being active state until 6.30 arrives. So I don't start my day early because then what happens is 6.30 starts to become five o'clock, right? And the things get shifted. If if it started to consistently happen a much earlier wake time for me, right? And all you do is you go to sleep later. So I would just shift it to two o'clock in the morning before I go to sleep. Yep. I'd shift my little behavior a bit to restrict it a little bit to bring it back on course and then drop back to 12.30. So it's not about catching up on sleep. It's not about the st- You just have this little thing in your head. It's like a little journey with your brain. Mm. What would you like me to do to help you every day? Consistent start to the day, please. Loads and loads of blue light from that daylight, 10,000 lux to really stimulate that serotonin to get me active and get all the bodily functions going. Do you want little breaks every now and then? I love them, absolutely love them because it really helps, you know, anxiety and stress and worry and finding things. We don't want to be taking those into sleep. They just get, they're like little worry diffuser moments. Yeah, you like the little break in the afternoon? Love it. And if I want to put you to sleep, I will, but don't even worry about it. Just give it to me. Mm. Unrushed evening process. Diminish light. You want plenty of time to get everything done, all the social activities, all the other stuff, loads and loads of time in an unrushed way because I don't want to be rushing around and then you trying to force me to sleep. Mm. Then we get to that particular... If things start to get a little bit crazy, don't worry about it. We can just shift from 12.30 to 2 a.m., just do three cycles, balance it off, keep the consistent start, keep the other things in place, and it'll just reset itself for you very, very quickly. Right, understand. Don't try and make me sleep beyond that point. Mm. Don't try to go to sleep earlier trying to catch up because that doesn't work for me. So your, your brain sort of suddenly, the whole process is whenever you look at sleep and circadian rhythms or anything like that, it's all about rhythm, pattern, and harmony, mm. and cycles, right? So all your, I think the whole process, Steve, is just to try and create some rhythm and pattern and harmony. What do you do in cycles throughout your rolling 24-7 so that you, you really take the emphasis away of worrying about sleep, which is its biggest disruptor, right? Yeah. And it's just, you can just, you know, we've all not slept at all and still smashed it. So what's that all about? (laughs) You know, so many times in many groups, they sort of go, well, I find it really difficult to, you know, your high performance was, I find it really difficult to sleep before an event. And I know I should be because it's recovery and sleep's important. I also find it very difficult to sleep after event. So what I've started doing is I take sleeping tablets the night before to make me sleep. And I take sleeping tablets the night after to make me sleep. 
Okay. Well, they're called sleeping tablets, aren't they, Nick? Mm. Just like headache tablets, pain relief tablets. They're just for sleeping, aren't they? No, 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 no. This is not the same thing. <laughs> yeah. You go, oh, right. Well, what happens if you just adjust your your way of coming into that particular room? So you might increase, maybe have a midday CRP 30 minutes and an evening one, crank up that, take the pressure off, and actually not try to sleep the night before mm. in your head. Do other recovery things, smash it, come back out of it, adrenaline's through the roof, don't even try. Yeah. Just get back on your little thing again. So really, yeah, so now we don't need the tablets because you're only taking the tablets because you're trying to sleep. I'm telling you, don't sleep. Yeah, no, I totally no. agree with that. I never, <laughs> I never sleep before an event at all. I think the last event, just before COVID, that I took part in was an ultramarathon, and I got in a hotel that night, and I just knew I wasn't going to sleep. And I just woke up the next morning, went out and, and like you say, smashed it and came back, didn't sleep the next night. And, you know, then a couple of days later, your body catches up, doesn't it? You, you, you come across things, like you asked me about the journey. And so like suddenly then I realised that the sort of serial gold medal rower, so Steve Redgrave, yeah. actually made his own decisions that it was actually counterproductive to try and sleep before, mm. you know, an Olympic final or a trial because it, it put him under too much pressure. And he realised very quickly that it didn't alter his performance. He can't not sleep every night. Mm. But certainly there, it was much better to to do other things that are positive, to get him there in the boat, to smash it in that little period, right? Yes. And then people like Sir Chris Hoy, with his cycling and stuff like that, they're all sort of talking, we're all sort of looking around and going, well, maybe that is the right way to do it. Mm. (laughs) Maybe that is. Um, you just go, well, maybe it is, yeah. And, uh, you know, you, you mentioned parents and stuff, but that's, it applies to parents, it applies to surgeons, it applies to everybody, everybody on this planet. But that's why I've stopped worrying about my sleep. I don't even, am I going to sleep well tonight? I don't care. Yeah. What I do know is everything I do every day promotes it. So if it happens, it happens. Amazing. Brilliant. Look, I think that's a, it's a really good place to sort of wrap it up, that sort of living life in harmony and, and in cycles. And uh, um, I can highly recommend your book. Yeah, the book's called Sleep by uh, Nick Little-Hales. Um, it, it's still available everywhere, isn't it? Amazon, wherever you want to go and get that. So, uh, yeah, I, I would highly recommend that. And it's not a massive book, so it's, it's, a, it's a really good read. As a lot of people said very early on when the book got written, it's now in 15 languages around the world and still being published. But they sort of said, your book's amazing, Nick, because I, I didn't even get past the first paragraph and I was out like a light. <laughs> Brilliant. Nick, thank you so much for your time. It's been a pleasure speaking to you, my friend. And uh, thank you for, for the knowledge that, that you imparted on me a few years ago when I, when I read your book. And it's certainly been life-changing for me. I hope so. I hope people... Uh, uh, get your book in there and look a little bit deeper into it. So uh, thanks again, mate. Brilliant. Lovely. Thanks. Cheers. Bye now. Bye, Nick. Bye-bye. So that's my chat with Nick Little-Hales. Uh, really, really interesting guy. 
you can find more information by going to Amazon, wherever you get your books, and just searching for Sleep, The Myth of Eight Hours by Nick Little Hales. Um, he's also got a website as well. So if you just search Nick, Nick oh, I still can't say it, Nick Little Hales, um, Sleep um, on, on your browser, you, you'll come across that. You'll find a lot more information there as well. Thank you very much for listening to this episode of the Alleycast. Don't forget to take a look at the 8 Below Husky Rescue uh, website as well. Well, I'm hoping to get one of the uh, one of the guys from uh, Eight Below on a podcast soon, so we can have a little chat about their work and see how Storm and Timber are actually getting on and what the progress is on that. Uh, and as soon as we've got any news on that, I shall let you know. Um, but until then, always a little further. We stand together, united as one. Forward on we go, facing friend and foe. We will know what it is. We have not time for that. If we make mistakes, we are lost.